Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick Orvis, and today I'm here with Percy. Hi. And joining us today, we also have special guest Strix Beltran, one of the co-authors of Bluebeard's Bride. Hello, Strix. Hi, Nick. Hi, Percy. So first off, uh, Strix, we were wondering, could you describe for our our audience uh, a bit more of your background and how you got started as a tabletop and and games designer? Oh boy, that's actually a loaded (laughs) question. Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll try to give the short version. Uh, So I am a project narrative director currently over at Hidden Path Entertainment, where we are making a AAA uh, Dungeons and Dragons game, which I'm very excited about. And that's literally all that I can say about it uh, today, (laughs) because that's all that's been released. Um, But I have uh, released a number of other video games or worked on another uh, a set of video games uh, such as Hollow Vista, uh, Beyond Blue, uh, State of Decay 2, and of course my tabletop background where I co-created uh, Bluebeard's Bride with Marissa Kelly and Sarah Richardson. Uh, you know, was part of that old G plus community before G plus was murdered and then we scattered to, to the winds. But uh, my background uh, is mixed. It's actually, uh, I have a master's degree in mytholo- mythological studies, so mythology with an emphasis in psychology, particularly depth psychology. And my undergraduate degree is actually in environmental policy. Uh, I thought I was going to be an EPA lawyer, <laughs> like when I was in university. Um, but I served in the Peace Corps uh, in Ecuador right after college. And that really uh, changed my perspective and what I wanted to do with my life. So when I came back, I actually went straight to graduate school to get that myth degree. And I honestly didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it, but I knew it was like the right thing. Uh, and I was going to kind of like find my way forward with, with what I had. So, uh, I used to work in tech startup. I don't do that anymore. Obviously I'm very happy being uh, full-time in video games. Amazing. Awesome. Uh, so we thought we would start by talking a little bit about Bluebeard's Bride specifically, and then and then zoom out a little bit later. Uh, but to kind of kick us off there, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of designing Bluebeard's Bride with uh, Sarah Richardson and Marissa Kelly. Yeah, that was a really kind of unique and singular experience. So our our game actually came out of a game jam um, at Gen Con, and. I'd never met Sarah before. Marissa, I knew kind of like nominally. And, you know, I walked into that game jam kind of like having to be dragged by my partner, Ajit, which shout out to him. He he is the the power behind the throne, truly, in this relationship. He's like, no, you should go. And I was like, I don't want to. And uh, obviously I did. We sat down in this game jam and Sarah and I were paired together randomly. It's not like we sought each other out. And we started generating ideas and we realized we both uh, had a love for fairy tales in common and we both loved horror. We both found the tale of Bluebeard, one of the most activating fairy tales that there is. It just, it draws people in. It's very powerful. It renews itself in literature all the time, like Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber, you know, uh, Crimson Peak. Like this is, this has got some meat to it. Uh, And we wanted to like investigate. 
So uh, one of the facilitators of the game jam was Marissa and she came over and she's like, what are you guys working on? And we're like, yeah, we're doing this thing with Bluebeard and we're not really sure about mechanics. And she's like, well, you know, maybe powered by the apocalypse or maybe we can try this thing. Well, we sucked her in. (laughs) And by the time the game jam was over, like two hours later or four hours later, whatever it was, the three of us knew that we had something special. Like in that room, we knew that we had a living thing And it was really powerful. And, you know, part of the game jam was like, you pitch your game at the end of the jam. We pitched our game and everyone else was like, oh, yeah, that's that's really powerful. Are you going to work on that? And the three of us kind of looked at each other and we're like, yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, by the time Gen Con had ended, like two days later, there was already already like talk about Bluebeard's Bride, like just around our friend circles and people excited about it, which actually really helped us believe in ourselves. Because like I was a f- really a first time designer, like I had written for a lot of other games and done mechanics for other games, but it's not like, you know, I was just constantly popping things out at that point. And um, the support of the community was really important. Everybody was super helpful. And then the three of us were just like, all right, we have a working relationship. We're going to meet every week. We're going to work on these mechanics. Here's our game plan. Here's our Google Docs. And we we did it. You know, it's like we were we were connected by the work itself because like none of us were really friends outside of this. And but we showed up for each other and for the work because we could just feel that it was great. Uh, and we believed in that vision. We believed in that power all the way until the end, until, you know, it hit Kickstarter and then it was released. And I'm still very, very proud of that work. I don't know. Did that answer your question, Bracey? Yeah. Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, an amazing uh, uh, story, too. I think especially... I, I don't know. It's just always so delightful to hear about a process like that where everybody comes, like knows immediately how special the work is and, and mm-hmm. comes together. Yeah, very lucky. What were your what were your goals for the experience that the game would offer to people? And I'm also curious whether you've ever heard anything from players of the game that surprised you about what they discovered in it. Yes, for sure. Um, for me, it was... And I can't speak for my other two co-designers, right? It was definitely catharsis. You know, this uh, emotional, psychological experiencing that leads to feeling better or to change. Um, You know, Bluebeard's Bride, when it boils down, it's like about the feminine experience of like, of being not powerful and what men and other powerful people do to you. Uh, And then like, what, how do you respond Right. Like you can't win in Bluebeard's Bride. We all know that. That's not the point. The point is like you're in a corner and you can't you can't poke it with a stick. You can't shoot it with a gun. Like, what is that? What is that? Now I can jump to the second point. Yay. I can I can make the connection. So for um, for a lot of women and femme people who played the game, what I noticed was afterwards, they're like, wow, that was so cathartic. Like I could like point at the thing and it was like scary and gross, but it was just the game. And then like, yeah, that feeling, you know, that feeling, the feelings in there. And then like a lot of masculine folks, especially cis men had a very different reaction. They, a lot of them were like really subdued and like really quiet. And they're like, that was a really good game. I don't think I ever want to play it again. And uh, for some of them, it was just like too overwhelming. Like, I feel like people like me have a lot of practice 
dealing with those things. And these guys, for some of them, they had said themselves, like, this is the first time I actually felt that way. I felt uh, powerless or disempowered and I couldn't do anything about it. And that was incredibly, incredibly eye opening. And I'm so glad I played it and it was so terrifying and I think I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, great. Then it has done what it was supposed to do for you also. Yeah, I will. Cards on the table as a cis man. The first time I read the game, I was like, wow, I don't know who I would play this with, you know, in terms of like who I, I would feel comfortable playing with this with. And also I'm a little bit scared even to play it at all like i think those are those are totally normal reactions but again like the game's pretty safe it's got rails uh but also like i I think we've said this many times before this is not a mass appeal game Mm -hmm. this is a game for people who want to play it and not everyone has to or should and we try to stress that a lot with this piece of art like you know what you're signing up for when you play Bluebeard's Bride. And there are definitely actually some people we don't want to play it because they're not going to have a good time. And that's not what we're interested in. We always want people to have fun. Otherwise, like, what's the point of playing a game? Mm -hmm. And I remember when we were reaching out to folks to see if they would be interested in playing any of the games that we're playing this season, the people who ended up playing Bluebeard's Bride saw that and were like, yes, this is exactly a thing that I want an experience that I want to have because of whatever lived experience I'm bringing to the table. Um, Mm -hmm. so that like magnetic draw was really cool. Um, but speaking about kind of sort of those, uh, the, the rails that it's on that sort of bound the experience. Um, you spoke on Chuck Wendig's blog about how the need to actively sort of restrain the horror of the game through the design and the mechanics because players were finding it uh, so so terrifying. Um, and I'm curious about what some of the design choices that sort of put those rails on it are, um, how you mechanically do that. Yeah. So in early alpha testing, you know, we trotted it around to our friends and it was too much. It just... It was, it put you, your amygdala all the way up on 99% and then it stayed there for the entire playthrough. And uh, anyone who knows about horror knows that's not sustainable. The brain will just short out. It will either go, ah, I don't feel anything now, whatever, I'm not here. Or it will go, that's funny. Cause it will do anything other than like deal with the thing that's right in front of it. So we realized we had to have peaks and valleys, right? We had to have a rhythm of ups and downs where you had breaks. And so that, um, is really reflected in our tokens system where, um, you know, you take harm from clearly stating that the bad guy is bad and you take healing from basically the fact that you tell yourself that the bad guy is good. And that is definitely a twisting knife. Uh, but what it also does is it makes players contextualize a found object in their investigations in the rooms as positive. So even if they don't believe it, even if it's like a twisty positive, their brain gets off the track of like, horror, 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 I'm gonna die, it's eating my limbs uh, for long enough that it's a reset and then we can go back in with uh, more depth to the next horrible thing. So that was really key in figuring figuring out how to sustain that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about the uh, the ring and the passing of the ring because it's, in the tabletop games I've read, it feels rare to see a mechanic that kind of explicitly hands so much 
uh, agency, I guess, to individual players in turn. So I was curious what inspired that choice and what the, the kind of goals yeah, of it were. Yeah, I love the ring because as you play, what you realize is the ring is a burden, right? First of all, it's a literal wedding ring, right? It's this symbol of your tie to this awful man who controls you and is making your life miserable. And you are voluntarily taking it right? Because you have some small amount of additional influence on the world around you apart from your sisters. Mm -hmm. Like you get an extra move, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But what ends up happening about halfway through the game usually is players start wising up and they're like, actually, every time I have the ring, horrible things happen. You have it. No, no, you have it. And so, uh, you know, I think it's a metaphor packed into a mechanic that's just like it's chef kiss perfect uh about like how it delivers meaning because that's what i care about a lot in my design is okay you think oh cool i have more agency this will be better Mm -hmm. and then you're like i have more agency and it sucks because that means i i'm the one that has to deal directly with all these horrors while my sisters are behind me Right. And I think that's really cool in like delivering the point, the content of Bluebeard's Bride to players in a really kinesthetic way. Right. I'm not telling them, here's this thing and this is how you should feel about it. I'm giving them an opportunity to incorporate it into their own mind body because it's a physical object they have to touch and take. So they kind of like internalize those messages. I feel like that's so interesting, too, in a game that thematically is so much about like you don't have any agency and this is what that feels like to yeah to play to play with this like also agency is bad actually in this context (laughs) you thought this was gonna make things better i don't know did it (laughs) turns out no um i'm curious about what is different about writing a horror game as opposed to games in other genres particularly in terms of the relationship between the game itself and the people playing it Uh, Horror games always require more trust. Mm. Trust between players, trust between the players and the designers, because there, you know, you, there is vulnerability in horror. You're letting yourself be scared. Like, like horror doesn't work if the consumer is not open to what it has to deliver. And so you have to get people on board. And that's why I think themes for horror games are really important because theme contains a lot of information that you can understand really easily and players can go, yes, I'm magnetically attracted to it or no, I'm magnetically like polarized against it. Great. Good. Then it's working as intended. Where something like, you know, a humorous game, like, yeah, everybody can kind of like pick up humor. It's humor is hard to design. Let's be really clear, but it's hard in a different way. And uh, it requires generally like a little less trust. And then like fantasy, high fantasy, um, that's largely about like, can I transport you to a place that is not like this place? And Bluebird's Bride does that too. Uh, But fantasy is more about exploration of like, who am I? Who are you? Like what values are interesting to me? How can I elevate them in a fun way through play? Um, or how can I explore different values in a fun way through play? I want to be the bad guy this time. You know, I want to be a lawful evil knight. I want to be a lawful good knight. That's where you have the space for, um, kind of like, you know, um, imagination and, and exploration. And this right is highly imaginative too, but that's, 
part of a package uh, that does something else as opposed to fantasy where that's its job. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that analysis of fantasy as something that is for like self-exploration and, and self-examination uh, and play and horror as a, a themed uh, exploration. Um, can I want to ask too, what what is your what is your personal relationship to horror like as a as a genre? I think you mentioned before that you and Marissa and Sarah are all horror fans. Has it what what are some of your your favorites and how what role has it played in your life? Yeah, I mean, I love horror. I've loved horror since I was a kid. And I, you know, it's for complex reasons. One, I was raised Roman Catholic, like Mexican Roman Catholic. And like, they're real big on like the ghosts and the devils and the like, this stuff is real and it's going to eat you kind of way. So there's always like this kind of like thing I was entertaining in my mind as a kid, like this could be real, like possession could be real. Ghosts could be real. Oh, maybe they are real and get real scared, which I enjoyed. And then the other thing is like, you know, I've experienced a lot of trauma in my life and seeing things in in content on screens or in books or something is a way to like kind of like investigate it mm. and like understand it better from a safe vantage mm -hmm. uh, rather than like from a really unsafe vantage, which is if it's the only vantage you ever had, you're like, I don't really get what's happening. You know, a lot of media can help contextualize that. Um, when I was uh, much younger, I was really, really into Stephen King. Like, I think I've read almost everything he'd ever written up to the end of Dark Tower. And then he betrayed me terribly. And I have not been a fan since. <laughs> um, but also, I love like old horror movies. Like one of my favorites is from the 1970s, Pumpkinhead. Have you ever heard of Pumpkinhead? I have, yes. love Pumpkinhead. <laughs> right. Um, Event Horizon is one of my favorite sci-fi horror movies of, I like, think, all time. Um, and so, yeah, mostly books, mostly movies. And I don't know. I think it's great. I love phantasmagorical stuff. I think though that stuff represents content of the psyche that sometimes is uh, much harder for us to get to through other means. And I'm very interested in that content. So that's like a pathway to it. Um, I'm also curious, sort of zooming out a little bit more, if there are influences or touchstones, like we have obviously the Bluebeard fairy tale has been like a touchstone for some of your game design work. Um, but are there sort of other things that you draw from frequently uh, in game design or narrative design? I mean, yeah, I, I draw from a lot of places. So I, I know who my inspirations are. I don't want to say heroes because I feel like heroes is a fraught term these days. <laughs> but like, you know, the imagination of Clive Barker and Ursula Le Guin and those really vivid, visceral storytellers that have like gristle in their content. Um, I really appreciate. And that's that's something that I really care about, too. Um, a lot of my design for narrative design is based off of psychology and um, the frames that I use uh, for psychology uh, and then applying them to game structure. For me in particular, that's a lot of uh, Jungian uh, psychology, depth psychology, as I think I mentioned earlier, plus like a lot of like people watching, like I'm one of those writers that just goes out in public and just sits on the bitch and just avidly watches people do weird things. Uh, you know, I really enjoy that. So I'm a student of humanity. That doesn't mean I'm a good student. Like, you know, relationships are hard, but uh, I try to watch for the little things. It's not really the big things that I'm after. It's like, what are the 
the tiny pieces that make a human a human. But otherwise, like, you know, as a game designer, I have to constantly learn from other games. So sometimes I'll play like Cyberpunk or Assassin's Creed or, you know, Tacoma or any number of high art, low art, complex indie triple A, because that's one thing about designers is we are always learning. We're never done. And the best designers are the ones that have that innate curiosity and drive to keep doing the thing and to keep keep learning new things. Cool. Absolutely. Um, I've heard I've heard so many people say exactly the same thing about artists of of every every kind. I think that cuts across mm-hmm. every every art form in some ways. Uh, for because we are a, a tabletop and theater podcast um, and we have a substantial theater listenership, I was wondering if you could briefly explain what being a narrative designer actually entails when you're working on a new uh, video game or another kind of game. Sure. Um, also, just to posit, I did run like a big LARP for a number of years and I'm really into LARPing. So if you want to talk theater stuff, we can do that too. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but for narrative design, so there's a difference between writers and narrative designers. And the thing is, our industry is kind of struggling with what that differentiation is. Like if you go to any company, they're going to tell you something different. And sometimes they'll be like, we're hiring a narrative designer and they're actually hiring a writer. And sometimes they'll be like, we're hiring a writer and they're actually hiring a narrative designer. You just read it from the description and you're like, oh, that's you want something other than what you're saying. So there's a lot of confusion uh, and there's a lot of us not really knowing how to define those things. But in general, games writers are people who write dialogue, write lore, write ephemera, write the story, mm-hmm. right? And narrative designers have the, they do all those things that writers do and they are systems thinkers, meaning they will design the backend dialogue system for a video game or they will design the mechanics uh, for a tabletop RPG. I happen to think most tabletop RPGs are narrative games with narrative mechanics. There's some simulationists that will say otherwise, but you're sitting down to tell a story. And so all mechanics are narrative mechanics to me in those circumstances. And so narrative design is about how do I make mechanics that are smart, that do a high amount of work, uh, and then deliver the mood, meaning, tone, interesting stuff that I want to make sure to deliver to a player so that I know my mechanics work well enough that what I intended them, for them to experience, they have experienced by the time that they're done. So it's it's experience design. Mm. Um, and you have to think in systems uh, to do that really well, I think. This is fascinating to me because uh, for context, Nick and I are both dramaturgs, which is a field within theater that similarly, like everybody will tell you something different when you ask them what that is. Um, and there's, yeah, there's just cool resonances there. What is it? Um, <laughs> oh, no, not, not this question. <laughs> um, I mean, you set yourself up. I did. I, I played myself, but I, I uh, think of it as information design. Um, so it's like making sure that all of the different pieces of a production know how to talk to each other, uh, which can be doing research. It can be giving playwrights notes on their script. It can be creating a way to build the world for the audience before they see the play. Like it could be a variety of things. Um, but it's largely just like assembling a lot of information in a way that makes sense to people and doesn't overwhelm them is how I would define it. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I would say similarly, but I was also going to say it's so 
interesting to me, Strix, that you talk about uh, narrative design as partly experience design, because I feel as though one reason we, Percy and I and Todd, I think, are all so interested in the confluence of tabletop games and theater is because I feel like theater is becoming more experiential and more play focused as we like move into the 21st century. So for me, dramaturgy is also a lot about thinking about what the audience experience of a play is going to be, um, which can be everything from like, what does it actually look like on stage to, well, what, what are the seats like? in this theater mm-hmm. and you know what does that tell our audience about who belongs and who doesn't or even you know what their relationship to the work of art is physically spatially um yeah so your whole picture thinkers basically pretty much yeah at least i tend to think of it that way <laughs> that's really whole cool picture thinkers who usually moonlight in academia because nobody <laughs> nobody can pay us to to do that continually. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I I feel like you touched on this a little bit in your last question, um, but I, I did want to ask you, how do you feel the, the field of narrative games has changed and grown um, in the last few years? I, I feel like the last 10 years has been a big boom. And are there any developments that you are hoping to see but haven't come around yet oh boy um we gotta split that into like a ttrpg and like uh, a video game lane because those lanes are really Very different fair. um so i think on the tabletop rpg design arena we've just seen like the heyday of indie mm-hmm. uh, you know when people started being able to you know uh print on demand and when kickstarter became available um that changed a lot of things uh, and I was around then to remember, <laughs> <laughs> you youngins. Uh, and uh, it was a period of like really quick iteration, a lot of people talking to each other all the time about design and um, kind of like a free borrowing society where I'm going to borrow some of your mechanics and you're going to borrow some of my theory and we're all just in this together making stuff. That was like pretty much pre-itch. Mm. Now there's itch. Uh, and itch has a decidedly different flavor, right? Um, where there are a lot of patron-based um, designers who put out micro games pretty frequently, and they're maybe iterations on the same theme, or they're entirely different. And it's like a different community than the one that I was raised in, which is now deceased because Google Plus is gone. And you know, I think there's still room. We always say push things further, but we don't know what further means. What I mean is a proliferation of different kinds of games. You know, for a long time, bless D&D, I work for D&D, it was the only game in town, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so you had one kind of play experience. And a lot of people argue, well, you can can kind of push and shove D&D into a whole bunch of different configurations. And I'm like, yeah, but like the core mechanics are the core mechanics and they have values attached to them. And you play through those values every time that you play. And so I believe in like the diversity of the human story. I think there are so many different ways of being and experiencing the world in thinking that I want games to catch up to that 
and be able to represent those experiences in inconceivable media. Um, so I just want the I want the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want the the prismatic undulation of all the different experiences of humanity in tabletop RPGs. That would make me very happy. On the video game side. You know, when I, I compare video games to cinema quite often, and that's because cinema is older than us and it's had a lot longer to evolve. And uh, cinema hit kind of its silver era and its gold era. And uh, for video games, I actually don't think we're, we're there yet. I think we have a tremendous amount to learn about our art form. It's really complicated. Narrative design for video games is extremely complicated. And really what happens right now is people like me go... Yeah, we're just going to try to throw this thing against the wall and see what happens <laughs> constantly, like for every game. Uh, and it's not like there's like a storied history of techniques of how to do things. There's some, but technology is constantly changing. By the time you ship a game, all the technology has changed and the next one has to be completely different uh, on a structural level. And then the other thing is like we are still in the process of sophisticating as an art form. And I don't think we're as sophisticated as we could be. And I am really looking forward to that as well. This is a little bit of a selfish question because I'm currently in grad school. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm curious about your degree in mythology, which sounds super cool and amazing. But I'm also curious sort of about like reconciling being in academic spaces and being interested in things like games and then vice versa, having like a very like theory-y, academia-y experience that you're then applying to a field like games, um, which I hope makes sense as a question and I can rephrase if it doesn't. Yeah, it does. Um, so, you know, I was in a PhD program and I passed my calls and was like ready to start writing my dissertation. And I bailed uh, because uh, what I found out after acquiring my master's from that program is like, hey, I'm a doer. Like, I want to do these things. I don't want to spend another three years or whatever else amount of time quoting other people to uh, and, and talking about their thoughts. I have thoughts. I have more than thoughts. I have things that I can implement in the world that I want to do. And so I still feel like I'm an academic. Like I occasionally write peer reviewed papers. I publish in like textbooks about bullpen games for universities. Um, but also, I am not purely an academic, obviously. I, I too much desire to do things. Uh, and my graduate school is pretty unique. So it was Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. And I love it. It's just a weird school because, you know, what school offers a PhD in mythology? A weird one. <laughs> and we were already a lot of like oddballs, like in my class. But I was like the oddest of the oddballs because they are talking about, you know, comparative mythology between like Sumerian and Egyptian. And I was like, let's talk about the modern myths and how RPGs are representations of archetypes that we engage with uh, consciously and unconsciously. And also there is a relationship between that and Haitian voodoo that we should look at because there's totally a link. Let's talk about Maya Darren. And they're just like, uh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, you know, so so even if I had wanted to do my dissertation, I actually don't think my professors had the means to even like remonstrate what was there uh, because I definitely grounded all of my work in mythological studies and I still do that to this day. The degree was extremely useful for my work and also 
the backwards compatibility from games to myth just wasn't there for those folks. I was like the first, the first one who was really ever talking about it. And I remember really clearly this came home to me. So I applied to give a lecture uh, at a pretty prestigious comparative mythology colloquium in Germany. And it was about LARP. <laughs> I was going to talk about LARP and archetypes and how, you know, with the fall of Christianity and the move of secularism into, you know, the mind of the modern West, where do we, where do we feed ourselves that archetypal energy? And I was like, with the role playing games, it got accepted somehow. <laughs> so I flew to Germany. I show up and I'm like, I don't know, I'm like 26, 27 at that time. And the next youngest person was like 20 years older than me. Like, and they were the young one. <laughs> and so I get up and I present and like the room was just like split. Half the room was like, my God, who let this delinquent into <laughs> our highly storied, uh, you know, meeting to, to deliver whatever this garbage is. And the other half was like, oh my, I see. Oh, that's very interesting. Oh, let's talk about that. And <laughs> I realized like that was going to be like my whole life uh, in academia and finding any place in any department was just going to be like wild because there are no myth departments yeah. except for at the school that I went to. Right. Mm -hmm. And I could fit into like maybe an anthro department or a literature department or something, but I was never going to be like among kin right among people who really understood what i was doing and i was like yeah i don't i don't know if i want to fight that hard for that so i just picked an easier fight which was video games ha, 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 ha. <laughs> well speaking as a person who just said the words i want to do an arg for my thesis to my advisor this week thank you for paving the way to do game stuff yeah no and i can do me <laughs> I was going to say, I, I am also currently in graduate school. I'm, I'm near the end of graduate school. And I feel similarly, again, uh, with theater and games, there is a there's starting to be talk. Uh, none of my none of my professors who are all wonderful. Some have some idea of what I'm talking about, but there are a few scholars I know at other universities, but they're all, like you say, isolated. You know, there's like Mike Sell who's off in an English department and mm -hmm. is thinking about theater and tabletop games and how they, you know, are a type of performance. And um, there are a few scholars who are beginning to think about that in a really like serious way, but it's a, uh, they're, they're each kind of on their own, a constellation yeah. of people. Um, do you have any connections with the folks at uh, Uppsala university? I don't think so. Like uh, Sarah Bowman or any of oh, those folks? I, I have heard of Sarah Bowman, but I have not, I do not, have a connection you might find some kindred spirits over uh, there so i just i offer that up as a possibility thank you yeah seriously <laughs> um the next question is is a question that i wrote because i was i've been thinking about this ever since i read um do you know bonnie ruberg's book the queer games avant-garde no i don't but it sounds like i should it's a very good book it's a lovely book of interviews but something that they talk about a lot because it's all with like queer and trans game designers um is this like expectation of making games that are like empathy engines is the phrase that they use a lot. Like this expectation when you're talking to like marginalized creators that they make games that sort of like communicate their lived experience to other people. And it's a question that I'm really interested in. And I was curious if you had any thoughts about like the relationship between games and empathy, particularly if you're making games that are like 
about a really specific lived experience? Yeah. So I think all narrative games require empathy. I don't know how you would do it otherwise, because you you have to have empathy for either the avatar you're inhabiting or empathy for your other players or characters, right? For it to mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that's a baseline. Like, yes, I don't know if they're empathy engines. Some definitely are and they're designed that way, but they all require successful engagement with empathy to work. Um, as far as the burden of empathy engines falling on marginalized creators, you know, I just kind of go like, I'm going to make whatever I want to make. Mm-hmm. Like, and, it, and if you don't like it, like, peace. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I for Bluebeard's Bride, I definitely felt like I really had something to say, mm-hmm. right? Something loud. And then we said it. Uh, but it doesn't mean like I'm going to keep flogging that horse forever. Right. And I'm thinking about other things and I'm, I'm doing other things and I, like <sighs> marginalized or no, I don't know how a creator makes anything that's not representative of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, for instance, you know, we just released hollow Vista this last September, which is a mobile game with AR elements where you are playing as this like young architecture graduate and she goes through some pretty trippy stuff. That's really like the most autobiographical I've ever been with a narrative in a game. And it would not be the game that it is without that component. So, you know, honestly, sometimes I think we overthink these things and we just got to let people make art, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and not try to police where where their boundaries are, which, you know, of course it happens, but I like just like to ignore those boundaries <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's only interesting to me as a question because I feel like similarly to you that like, yeah, like everyone should just do what they want to do and the things about them that matter to them will show up whether they, whether they try to or not. Yeah. This, this is perhaps riff- riffing a little bit on the empathy, um, Perhaps not. That was a pointless way of introducing it. Um, but I, I did want to ask, you mentioned uh, you have a lot of experience with uh, LARP design uh, earlier. And I was curious, since that is very much something that's in our um, our broader wheelhouse, our, our broader wheelhouse is people who deal with live performance so much. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about what your experience there is and how designing for LARP is is different from designing for tabletop or video games. Yeah, I I love LARP uh, because I think out of all of the like types of role playing there are, it's the most powerful because it's the most embodied. Right, you're there, you are the character, your alibi is somewhere else. Like your your screens and your protections are down. And I don't know. For me, LARP was really transformative. Um, you know, as uh, a kid, I had a little rough, uh, it had real challenges, like connecting with other kids and bullied and isolated, you know, the normal nerd stuff. Um, but like, I couldn't figure out like how to exist with these other people. And it, it felt like really desperate. And um, then I started LARPing and I was like, oh, this is like a low stakes way to try out emotions and to try out actions, social actions, and see what happens. And when the game is done, it's over and great. I can go home and whatever mess up I did was the character's mess up. It wasn't mine. And it was a period of like pretty intense 
emotional growth for me where my EQ went up a lot. Like my, my ability to like smoothly interact with other people was just like times 10 times a hundred. And so I really value the art form. I ended up um, participating in and then running a Legends of the Five Rings LARP for years. And um, it got really big. We were operating in like three actual U.S. cities and like, you know, traveling to go to all the games and run them. And it really gave me the teeth that I needed for the work that I do now because narrative design for a LARP is in vivo. So people are reacting, moving and changing things all the time and you have to react to them and you have to be ready to react to them so you have to like to have like 10 plot lines ready to go and you have to know how they intersect and you have to know people's personalities and you have to also allow for like dramatic changes and go with them to empower the player right larping is really about how do i make place for this player to show up mm-hmm. how do i make room for them to expand to, to really embrace their character and make it big, have them take up the entire room. So that's like training and empathy, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when there are like 50 to 100 people running around for like eight hours in a single day and you have to manage all of their experiences over the course of those eight hours with each other, with you, with the story, and then set it up perfectly for the next time you play for the next eight hours, it is really complex work but uh my little like designer brain my baby designer brain at the time was like loved it it was like it was like cocaine it was like <laughs> oh this is so invigorating i could just do this forever oh and it wasn't like it wasn't like manipulation or playing with puppets it was it was not like that at all it was like here's this living symphony and if i just direct it this little bit this way these are the beautiful sounds that it makes. And if I direct it a little bit that way, these are the beautiful sounds that the symphony makes. And oh yeah, there's the violin solo. Like, you know, there's the piano concerto. Like, like let's do the thing together. There was a virtuosity to it, but also like you can't divorce that kind of theater from community either. You, you can't be like, you know, the independent, uh, you know, artiste. You, it has to be rooted in that communal energy. So I feel like that was really like good training for like the rest of my creative uh, life with narrative design. I I have a very selfish question now because so many of those things you just said about um, creating space for people to show up. I wanted to ask if you've ever experienced any immersive theater or uh, kind of even just like it kind of immersive experience art, because I feel like these worlds are so close to each other. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'll just start yes. asking if you're uh, familiar with that. I love immersive theater. Yeah. I love immersive theater. Um, you know, for before the pandemic, the New York scene was actually pretty hot. You had third mm-hmm. rail productions out mm-hmm. there. One of my favorite immersive theater experiences is Then She Fell uh, from Third Rail. Um, of course you have the Macbeth LARP over like the four stories of (laughs) sleep no more. Um, and Seattle had a small scene. We had some spaces up to, uh, I think a year or two ago where they were snatched up by rent increases, but I participated with, uh, you know, immersive theater out here too. There was like a turning of the screw and there was like some fun Krampus and like Halloween stuff. In fact, for my 30th birthday, we actually worked with them to like throw an interactive theater birthday party. So like, I, yes, I'm super into interactive theater. And I think interactive theater and LARP are like, they're like fraternal twins. Mm. They're different, but are they? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a, 
it, it's, it's a whole I've been thinking a lot about immersive theater lately and the ways that um, in in some immersive theater experiences, one of the things that feels uh, to me sometimes and I know to other people as well, sometimes hampering is the lack of character actually for an odd for audience members because mm-hmm. it can feel um there's a scholar whose name I'm blinking on who talks about it, who talks about character itself as a kind of protective apparatus for audience members to like interact with the theater. And now, listen, you know, talking with you, I've I've been like, oh, but if we, you know, really put characters in on the audience in an immersive th- theater experience is have have we just created a LARP? Um, and it is. I think you have. Yeah, I kind of think right. so. <laughs> so now I'm, now I'm. That's that's just sent me down a rabbit hole in my own brain. Well, I'm and my other thought <laughs> that comes up when you say that, Nick, is you know audiences that show up at a immersive theater are sometimes how do I say this? Normal people, <laughs> uh, and normal people sometimes are not ready yeah. or react badly to being asked to occupy a space as a character and it can really go off the rails. So I think right now that's more of like a safety thing for like the actors and like the protection of the production than it is anything else. Yeah, I do know (laughs) one thing that is, um, that's really in the air in the immersive theater world is like, how do we offer multiple kinds of engagement? You know, so, so that people who want to engage in a more interactive way can do so without it being like, uh, a requirement of the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. Maybe call and response might be a good mechanic for that, right? Like, they don't have to occupy a character, but they can say something repeatedly back and yeah. forth with, like, a, a cast member that responds to them so they get that interaction. And whatever they're saying has meaning, so they can, like, kind of absorb that meaning, but they're not pushed entirely into the character space. I don't know. I'm just brainstorming with you. I, we, we can move on. <laughs> no, no, I love it. This is this is so delightful. Um but we are, I, I know we're, we're running toward the end of our time together. So I did want to uh, honor that and just ask you, is there anything else you've mentioned the uh, the Dungeons and Dragons game that you cannot speak about in any greater detail? <laughs> um, I was curious if there are any other projects or, uh, I, I don't know, causes or anything that uh, you would like to talk about your work with before we let you go. Sure. Um, so I always have something going on, uh, you know, in the shadows. Uh, I currently have an agent and I'm working on a nonfiction RPG book, basically about how to how to design your first RPG. Um, and then is there anything else I'm allowed to talk about yet? <laughs> uh, Games World seems to be full of NDAs. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just rules our lives, right? I think that's I think that's all that I can talk about for right now, other than, like, I do mentor, uh, particularly women of color, femmes of color, in the video game and tabletop RPG space, like, on a continual basis. Um, so I'm always looking for, like, good high-potential mentees to help out. And then my husband and I, Ajit, Ajit George, we run uh, a private kind of, like, high potential mentoring program um, that we fund ourselves that helps um, basically professionals who are like ready to get into full-time games work, but just can't quite make that step. And we help them get them connected and polished to land that first FTE position. Um, but again, that's, that's all private stuff. We're not asking for donations or anything. Uh, but yeah, always busy, always doing something, always learning, right? 
uh, we're culture vultures. Uh, we're always hopping around, picking at the new stuff. So hell yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, it was really, really lovely getting to talk to you about Bluebeard's Bride and games and, and LARPing and all of these things. Dungeons and Dramaners is produced by Todd Bryan Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and it's mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Dramanerds. Thank you.